<laughs> well, thank you, Todd, because I'm trying to get this message out every way I possibly can. Frankly, we're, we're a little scared because we're so far behind. Hey, everybody, Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Podcast. How art thou? Well, we're in the midst of it. It's uh, it's everything we thought a pandemic would be, I guess. Is that Yeah, that's probably as good of a way to kick this off as, as we can kick it off. It's now at the point where the idea of what happens next, the bounce back idea, the restoration part of this discussion, which is something that I've been thinking about a lot and putting together a bunch of information, uh, probably some kind of workshop. And I'm working on this current book that actually started well before the pandemic, but when the worst thing happens kind of thing. And this idea of bouncing back became really appealing to me. And it, it, it became really clear in my appeal for bouncing back that it's time to talk to David Woods again. Um, who's our friend, a uh, good friend of the pod, longtime listener and frequent contributor. And he wanted to tell me about um, some work he's doing right now around this very idea, around what happens next and what it looks like. And he's quite, he's very interested in getting this information out. So feel free to pass this pod on to anyone you need to. But more importantly, uh, that's probably important, but as importantly, that's a better way to put that. Listen carefully to the thought he's put into this and how he talks about really the four actions. He, he, he talks about resilience in a way that we all should be listening. Resilience is the ability to do something. It's, a, it's an ability to have action. It's capacity to act. And that's what David talks about in great detail today. I, I'm so pleased to get to share this pod with you. I think it's one that you'll find um, quite important. It, no, it's not quite important. It's very important to what we want to do. So listen carefully to what this has to say. See what you think. I'm curious as can be where you are in this one. So without further ado, uh, this is the pod for today. This is Dr. David Woods, and he's going to talk to you about what's next. So listen carefully, and there's tons of supplemental information in the pod notes. So look away and, and see what you come up with. We'll talk more at the back side of this. Here's David. Tell me about this new article that you've got coming out, the, the four action capabilities. That's going to be profoundly important to people as they move ahead. Because I'm seeing this, there's probably not a chance to hit command Z, erase the past and start from where you were. There's no question the world's going to be a different place. Well, we're seeing more and more people being uh, concerned about what happens next as outbreaks peak and hopefully start subsiding substantially, in particular in terms of their impact on uh, healthcare facilities uh, where uh, and areas where uh, uh, intensive care units and hospitals can get slammed with large numbers of seriously ill patients. Well, it's important for us to go through some of the key findings in our most recent work. And it's I want to note that uh, my co-authors 
in putting this together are Tom Seeger at Arizona State University and Dave Alderson at the Naval Postgraduate School. And so when will it be safe to resume normal activities is a question people ask. And we're starting to see people start to respond and outline certain criteria. Um, But in order to understand moving forward, uh, sometimes we like to say bouncing forward, uh, the first thing we have to correct is uh, an unfortunate metaphor that makes people feel like this is a storm and that if we just hunker down and endure the storm, it will pass us by and we are able to go back outside and resume our activities. Maybe there's some cleanup and some repairs to be done, uh, but then things continue. Um, but when we've studied what makes systems resilient, uh, the key thing, as my colleague in this, Eric Holnuggle, has said for you know 15 years of building resilience engineering, it's about your ability to do things. Resilience is about doing stuff. It's not having something. It's not about having enough masks or having enough ventilators. It's the ability to do something. In this situation, we have to remember this is not an external like a, uh, but rather we're dealing with something that is uh, uh, where human act is part of the storm. The virus resides in people. It's about physiology and disease processes. It's carried by human beings and transmitted uh, among people in terms of our activities. So it engages with connects to the way that we have access to healthcare. Um, and uh, and uh, it affects our economic, our social interactions. So all different kinds of human activity are caught up in the challenge that the COVID-19 virus represents. So um, when, you, uh, when you recognize that resilience is about building, sustaining the capabilities to act, right? Then the question is, what do we need to be able to do in order to relax restrictions that are in place? Well, the first thing, and and at first blush, these four things we're going to bring up are going to sound straightforward, sound conventional. They're going to sound similar to things that are starting to appear. But when you put it in this frame of action capability, it starts to take on a different meaning. So the first one, uh, we pose these as questions. Can we carry out the test, track, isolate, best response to controlling outbreaks, infectious disease outbreaks, as new cases emerge and could become new hotspots? Can you track, test, track, and isolate? Um, that's, the, that's what we know. Test suspect people suspected for the infection, track their recent contacts, isolate anyone potentially exposed. This is most effective and uh, from a public health point of view, and it's the most economically efficient. And our current situation in the U.S. is right, mostly a function of, the, of our inability to carry out this fundamental approach. Right? Instead, all we can do is restrict activity and shelter in place. So uh, what do we need to be able to do? Well, interestingly, we can resume normal activities to some degree uh, because we'll get a chance to do a do-over. We get to try again. We blew it the first time. 
And so our ability to relax or target, right, social isolation kinds of things comes if we can now start to carry out this most effective of actions to stop outbreaks with the least economic impact. It's been done in South Korea. It's going on in Germany, Iceland. These, you know, what do you need? You need the complete infrastructure, the system for carrying out testing at scale. You need a surveillance and rapid action system that mo requires mobilizing lots of people. It's not just the number of tests, right? But it's building a system for carrying that one out. So that's number one, okay? Okay. Um, number two, uh, we need to be able to meet all of the non-COVID-19 patient health needs, right? We've stood many of these down in terms of elective procedures, right? People are concerned about going to the hospital uh, if they have needs or going to the doctor's office. We need to be able to meet all patient health needs, non-COVID-19, while still sustaining the ability to ramp up our care capacity if we start to have new uh, inflows of seriously ill patients from new COVID-19 infections. Now, look at what, what's happened in healthcare systems. We've had this rapid reconfiguration to try to avoid overload, right, as numbers of seriously ill COVID-19 patients hit hospitals. You know, overload situations we've seen and the tragedies, the excessive deaths that results in, in Northern Italy, in Spain, in New York, right, and happening in the UK now. Our delayed response, our inability to anticipate and intervene effectively has increased slammed hospitals. And so everybody's been adapting and reconfiguring their intake uh, uh, trying to reduce transmission from COVID-19 to others in the hospital, creating two different tracks uh, for COVID-19 infections versus non-COVID uh, uh, patients. So we've been rapidly reconfiguring and reprioritizing, right, learning how to better take care of COVID-19 infections that produce seriously respiratory uh, uh, illness and relaxing some other things. We need to stop deferring other stuff. We need to provide health care to all, not just COVID-19. So that means something dramatic has to happen. We have to re-reconfigure our healthcare system, right? We have to take care of that, start working down that backlog of other needs. We have to be still ready to treat new inflows of COVID-19 positive patients. We have to sustain the special operational constraints imposed by COVID-19 patients. Um, we, um, uh, we need to uh, take advantage of the innovations that were introduced in order to cope with the outbreak, right? We have new ability to interact with patients through telehealth mechanisms that have been set up. Um, and this requires flexibility, another round of flexibility and reconfiguration of the healthcare systems that were under you know, stress uh, before COVID-19 hit, and of course been under super degrees of stress in order to compensate for the surge of patients. 
Now, there's a couple prerequisites for that re-reconfiguration of healthcare delivery to all. We have to reestablish the standards for protecting healthcare workers. So we have to meet the higher burn rate of protective gear for the post-COVID-19 world. And that where is that supply chain and how to get that working again to produce that higher flow of protective gear, right? Uh, notice again, right, if we run through these, it's about a system. It's reconfiguring systems to work at scale. Um, the second one is we need to decrease uh, barriers to medical care for potential COVID-19 patients, access, cost. Otherwise, people will not receive care and still could be sources of new forms of transmission, increasing the risk of reemergence. So this idea that we can have the uh, highly asymmetric access, depending on insurance, depending on finances, right? That increases the risk to everyone. So this reconfiguration to be sustainable has to make access more equitable. Third, the re-reconfiguration is going to require new forms of coordination across hospitals, the different healthcare specialties, and a variety of government jurisdictions. We're going to have to interact and cooperate and interconnect in new ways. Uh, again, as we work through these, notice the issue isn't simply, okay, let's restart non-COVID healthcare procedures. It's not simply get enough uh, tests out there. It's we have to build and reconfigure our systems that requires new forms of coordination right, over different roles and levels, and it requires this all to work at essentially a national or continental stage. So our third one is the, starts to be the things that everyone really, really wishes for. Can we provide safe and effective treatments to promote recovery and reduce risk for patients seriously ill from COVID-19? And yes, we have widespread efforts going on to develop treatments. Uh, I would like to remind you, Todd, that we have been concerned with mortality, and some segments of the population feel like their mortality risk is lower, and so they want to focus on other aspects of the disruption from the rolling outbreaks. Uh, but I would remind people the medical term is morbidity and mortality. Uh, morbidity, it's long-term health consequences from having had the disease. And at this stage, we actually know very little about the morbidity. In other words, if people are seriously ill with COVID-19, the, but they survive, what are the long-term consequences for their lung function, for example, or the effects on other organ systems? These are all things we will be working out over time as we learn more about this disease. So we are all hoping for safe and effective therapeutic interventions, right? And if we get those, obviously, that means we can speed up our decisions to relax activity restrictions because we can treat people who get sick. We can reduce the fatalities. So the first thing, the first system issue is a classic one that Eric Hallnagle laid out early in our development of resilience engineering. And in this situation, we can call it a speed thoroughness trade-off. 
right? How fast can the healthcare system identify promising treatments? Right? But we also need thoroughness. We, how, how fast can, you know, can we still be thorough in evaluating potential treatments to, to determine things like contraindications, side effects? Maybe it, this uh, one is only beneficial to one group and others might be at greater risk from introducing or trying that therapy. Um, remember, there is a fundamental concept called therapeutic range, right? All medical interventions have a therapeutic range. We tend to think of that as a dosage. You know, what's the right dosage? And you've heard of overdoses from people self-medicating with some hyped potential uh, uh, medication. So a therapeutic range is the range at which the intervention helps, right, relative to the risks it brings. And so we all want to make sure that, depending on comorbidities and other kinds of things, what's actually going to help, right, and not harm patients or impose disproportionate risks. So in all of this, what do we currently know? What we currently know is that we're uncertain, Right. And so as something becomes possible, we need to get some part information. Well, maybe that will show it has some more promise and we have to gather more information and share that information in order. But we have to also be flexible to recognize that, that we have to change course as evidence builds up about how these treatments will work in practice and where it adds risks and when those risks outweigh the therapeutic potential therapeutic benefits. This takes time, right? And it means that to rebalance, we need to be highly responsive. So we want to be fast, but we can't sacrifice thoroughness. So we have to reconfigure. And when you do that, as we've studied several in several different areas and challenge events hit at scale uh, in other industries and other events, uh, what do we find is people still meet and find a new way to balance speed and thoroughness but they sacrifice other dimensions. They might sacrifice costs. They might sacrifice proprietary information, right? Because we need to collaborate and share faster. Whereas if we operate to protect proprietary information, it will slow down our ability to interact, share information, and quickly check for potential negative side effects right, and more quickly enhance the flow of information about what are promising effects. Now, let's take a simple example. Let's, let's put these a little more concrete. Um, so we start doing these partial treatments because uh, they're small scale, they're limited, because every place is busy treating patients and at risk of overload at the same time that in treating patients, they want to figure out what's going to be, what's going to work. So we've got potential treatments being trialed in multiple places under various constraints. So we need clearing houses that allow us to gather, validate, and share new information. Right. Which ones should be pursued further and the scale of use expanded? Which ones are not working out sufficiently? Where are those clearinghouses? Again, what do we see? We see new re reconfigurations of relationships. We need to create systems and we need these to start operating right at larger uh, with larger connections over space, over the, the, the whole length of the country. 
So we're the information clear, clearing houses to collate, curate, and check the emerging but uncertain and partial results. Now, once we get a promising direction, we have new systems requirements that come up as well. A current example is a class of potential treatments exploring convalescent plasma. So this is the hope that there are some immunity building uh, aspects uh, or some other things that help your system respond to the disease from people who've already contracted and recovered the disease. What do we need? Well, there's trials starting to happen, but they're very small scale. Why? Because you've got to get the plasma. Where's the, where are the donors? Who has right? Who is tracking the donors? What donors are willing to step forward? How do you get the donations to the different places to start trialing this? So how do we build a state or regional registry of potential donors from those who have recovered to speed the availability of this treatment so clinicians can learn? Does it help? How does it help? Who does it help? Right? What's the message again? Where's the system for doing this? How do we build up the system capability? If we want to roll back restrictions, right, we uh, reduce excessive fatalities, right, we need to be, to be able to stand up these new kinds of configurations and relationships to be able to work at scale to speed while still having thoroughness checks and roll out at scale the different kinds of uh, treatments that will help. Now, so I spent some time on the third one because it covers many of the same factors that play out on the fourth one. So the third one is about the ability to create treatments, reduce excess mortality, therefore we can reduce, um, we can relax restrictions uh, on other activities. So the fourth one is, have we created the ability to assess immunity or build immunity in the population through antibody testing and vaccines? Right. This is what everybody really, really wants. When can we get to a vaccine that will produce immunities, at least uh, on a rolling basis, seasonal basis, as we normally see it with the flu, uh, so that we can reduce disease severity in the population, build immunity so less people get sick. Right. We end up with less risk of fatalities, less of uh, overload of healthcare facilities and uh, treatment so we need the ability to assess immunity through antibody testing at scale so that we understand, right, the population's risk. And, and we also need it as a means to track how the virus changes over time. Um, however, if you've noticed, the scale of the pandemic has overwhelmed the ability to stand up the necessary assessment capabilities in some parts of the world. Right. Some parts of the world, they thought they were ready to do antibody testing. They thought they had the, uh, the, the stuff, right? but it didn't work. Again, the capability to act and to act at the scale that's imposed for a nation or a region right, ends up being a big systems problem. Um, the degree of coordination required to develop and deploy the means to assess immunity in a timely manner across the world is a challenge that is currently beyond the, the system's reach. Right? We need to stand up a system, build our knowledge base on this infectious disease right? to encompass our reach should encompass the global reach of the virus. What's the theme that's coming out here is we really are far 
not very far along on actually standing up systems that have the reach, have the action capability, with the reach to really tackle the different aspects that the rolling series of outbreaks has uh, created and the challenges that flow from that for our societies. We are just beginning to stand up these capabilities. The next piece we wanna be working on is how do we translate these issues into um, uh, strategic actions to start to stand up these system capabilities, to stand up the new relationships. Um, so what does this mean for us? We naturally ask, right, as the initial outbreaks subside, when can our area move forward restarting normal life activities while preventing recurrence of hotspots or second waves, right? If we can employ, right, the, the best method to counter infectious disease outbreaks, we can restart more activities because we can cut off emergence of new hotspots, right? Uh, we can resume normal human activities to the degree that we can first restart normal healthcare activities. If we can't restart the healthcare system to care for both COVID positive and regular healthcare patients, we're not going to be very get very far in restarting other aspects of normal human life. Uh, to the degree we can start to stand to pursue. Uh, identify and pursue promising treatments while still being thorough about new risks uh, and effects, negative effects, right? Those treatment possibilities will allow us to go further in terms of resuming activities. And if we can track and enhance immunity in the population, again, we can do more. Uh, but these capabilities do not yet exist at the scale needed to navigate the current uncertainty, right? And when, as we develop all of these capabilities, remember, we still have to steer. We're going to have to readjust our course because of the uncertainty, the learning curve, the ability to stand up and coordinate across different uh, parts of our overall system. Uh, we need to be able to implement the best epidemic control tactics, reconfigure healthcare delivery to treat all patient needs. Um, Use, uh, use the experience with telemedicine to hasten in innovation, right? And we have to work across many collaborating roles or organizations and jurisdictions in unprecedented ways. Now, as we move to this, I think it's important to recognize that there are opportunities, right? We are moving forward, bouncing forward towards a post-pandemic world where we can find a new balance across multiple competing societal goals. And that means we need to start thinking about considerations of equity, access, payment systems in healthcare, particularly in the US where these things are so uneven pre-pandemic. Um, we need institutions uh, and organizations being highly open to learning about what works and what does not work well in managing the kinds of high-risk, high-uncertainty events, such as posed by this particular challenge, right? Disaster resilience tells us a great deal about how learning and complex systems can, when after facing these kinds of challenge events, can lead to constructive change of the fundamentals, the underlying systems, 
right? And relationships in society and how it can break down into debates about who erred. We can fragment, right, and work across purposes. We can treat these as um, uh, situations that, ah, at last we can go back to the way we were. We don't have to really change. We just can fine tune a few things, or those people need to do something different, but I can go back to what I was before. Constructive change requires some fundamental learning and fundamental re-examination of relationships, purposes, goals, goal priorities in society. Um, The lead up to this outbreak illustrates that many of the capabilities required for resilient performance in our societies have been degraded. The systems are more brittle than anyone realized. Um, the um, uh, challenges in uh, learning and in coordinating across different parts of our society, the different institutions have all been more difficult to put into play. Uh, denial in politics is frustrated anticipation of the extent of the crisis and therefore responses have been late and incomplete, right? in- increasing both the excess fatalities and the economic costs of responding to the rolling series of outbreaks. Um, we've been unable to apply what had been learned from controlling, controlling previous infectious disease outbreaks. Um, we need to reverse course on all of these things. Um, and we need to do that in an environment where um, there's been significant breakdowns in reciprocity. One of the lessons of resilience is the importance of reciprocity. And this comes from social science studies all the way down to hardcore engineering control system stuff. Uh, All of these keep pointing to a critical role for reciprocity, which is how do we come to the aid of others when their role or their part of society and their organization, their role in that organization is under stress, right? How do we come to the aid of hospitals as they're under stress from a surge of COVID-19 patients? How do we help them build a readiness to respond before that surge hits them? Uh, And we've seen both, as always in these crises, the best of people and the worst. We see people in denial. We see fragmentation. We see breakdowns in reciprocity as the stories percolate about uh, conflict and competition between different jurisdictions over personal protective equipment. Um, The ability to re-engage reciprocity Right now, to build on the areas where reciprocity is in action, where do we see that most? We see that in the communication between different uh, parts of the healthcare system, where critical care doctors are sharing information horizontally all over the world, trying to fill each other in on what they're seeing, what they're trying, what works, what doesn't work. You see this, for example, in stories that they've learned that they can reduce their reliance on ventilators um, because they're learning more about the unusual presentation of this particular respiratory disease. It combines elements that would normally be occur separately in patients, requiring them to reconfigure and rethink some of the, of the standard options they would utilize uh, to try to support these patients breathing. 
And the simple example is the use of prone position. So as these patients uh, uh, get hypoxic, right, there's less oxygen transfer at the um, uh, at the the fundamental gas transfer point in the lung to bloodstream, um, and so they're able to breathe for themselves. Um, they have the energy and the capability to breathe, but they're not getting the right level of oxygen transfer, so their oxygen level in their bloods is down. Normally, that leads to rapid intubation and control and ventilation to control to manage the lungs for the patient. What they're starting to discuss, some people are thinking that, wait a minute, we can help people to breathe on their own longer, and they're trying different techniques. A remarkably simple one is to simply have the patient lie prone. So they start adapting a variety of physical equipment to make it easier for patients to turn over, lie prone, and they see re temporary recovery in O2 sat levels. So relatively simple things are playing out. A nice little example right, of that learning and adaptation is fundamental at all levels of society in responding to this. So as we move forward, we're going to continue to work on laying out some of the strategic uh, interventions that can be used to build these action capabilities because we're lagging behind. That's been the story of the pandemic so far, right? A lot of jurisdictions are lagging behind in the different aspects of building the appropriate action capabilities. And we really need to push forward on that learning front, right? That we can learn the right lessons, even as we're still building up our capability to manage the pandemic and move to a post-pandemic world, right? We need to be able to improve resilience and responsiveness, right? That means we have to rethink equity and access in healthcare. We need to reorganize different parts of society to support uh, our ability to manage uh, in the face of infectious diseases and not simply this one. Right? And how society has to come together right, as we face emerge, the potential emergence, other new forms of widespread crises that engulf many of the different jurisdictions and activities that have been shown to be brittle uh, and have trouble adapting to change uh, in the current circumstances. It's quite remarkable. I, I really can see now why you're choosing to use the words bouncing forward. Uh, the world is going to be uh, uh, different. And the, the, um, the key thing is this, how do we orient so that we have constructive change uh, that addresses a variety of problem areas, uh, rebalance some kinds of goal conflicts. Uh, uh, there'll be some reprioritization on, on what we're willing to sacrifice when. I think it's important to realize that we're not in a Sophie's Choice referring to that old movie about the Holocaust. Right? It's not we either let a variety of ill patients die uh, in order to uh, save the consequences from the shutdown of economic activity, right? The the um, the lessons of our studies and understanding of resilience in the face of a variety of kinds of crisis points in exactly the opposite direction, right? That success depends on solidarity. It depends on cooperation across roles, coordination across different activities, uh, reciprocity as we all struggle, 
stepping up for each other right, turns out to be important. We can think of this as maybe a social good, but that's what the technical results, right, the hard science results on how resilience is built, how adaptive capacity is built to generate resilient performance when challenges and crises, crises arise. Um, right, we need to move in that direction despite the fact that people, that we can end up with denial, we can end up with retreat, we can end up with fragmentation, uh, we can end up with exploitation. As some parties defect from a cooperative approach, from, a, from solidarity and reciprocity, all right, and simply try to gain a selfish advantage in the short run. In the long run, right, in the medium run, and right now, we're all in this together. And that we get out of it the best and the fastest towards a new future, right, the more we work together. Bouncing back. Because restart feels wrong to me because we never really stopped. Bouncing forward is probably the most appropriate thing I can think of because it builds that bridge between having the crises, being surprised, failure of anticipation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to learning and moving forward. Everything's going to boil down to learning. Learning's everything. And the key is, is your organization has to be smart enough to know that you don't know. Because knowing that you don't know allows you the opportunity to learn. And this is a big, fat slap in the don't know face. Special thanks to David Woods for helping and for you for listening to this podcast. Take care of yourself, please. And uh, let's start talking about what it looks like to bounce forward. That's going to be key to us. Until then, learn something new every, uh, every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. And for goodness sakes, be safe.
good podcast. I'm very, I got a bunch of good stuff out of this. I'm going to roll with this. This is good. Yeah, yeah, I think it's good. Well, I really wanted to get this there to you. I want to get this out. I really want to know about um, about the uh, you know uh, partial listens and full listens to this. I mean, we're this is really this is where this is not just commentary. So help people understand. This is starting to get into the transition into what does it mean for us to do something to be better and and, to, and while we're still in the middle of. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll put the so, I'll, I'll talk to Jay and get the tracking on this all set up. So that's good. The last one, all right. the one from last week, it's at like Jay just told me it's like at nine thousand six hundred full downloads. You're kidding! Wow, nine thousand six hundred. Yeah. Well, let's hope this one goes big. It will. And whatever you can do to promote this. And we're going to work and see what we can do in the next week or so to come up with a follow-up paper on um, turning this into a strategic action plan. Excellent. And um, I don't know what that'll go. I mean, it's easy for us to be a little too abstract or, you know, so con- you're either so concrete it's stand up this registry, right. which they kind of know they need to do. I mean, some of the people in the system kind of know you need to do that. And us telling them you need to stand up this registry as an example on the plasma case doesn't tell them how to do it they're like yeah thanks okay yeah i didn't realize i should get going on that how do i get yeah, going exactly. on what that? do i do next? <laughs> yeah and who do we go to and stuff so we started talking about this and uh i don't know i want to uh my my uh, team uh, these colleagues and I, uh, uh, they asked well what, you know we, we started talking about how to plan this today and i said i have the title what would George Marshall do? <laughs> that's perfect. Ah, that's perfect. And and and, uh, and and they're like, well, maybe. No. But problem is, most people in society don't know who George Marshall it's was. Time to learn. <laughs> and and uh, well, it, it is a good one. And the, the irony is, we think of it as George Marshall in post Europe Reconstruction, uh, but part of Marshall was pre. Uh, was how he how he set up the U.S. military to go into World War II before we were in World War II, and and you'll just for just as a teaser if I get this together if this becomes part of it is because we can't say this in the in the strategic steps based on Marshall, but the first thing he did was fire all the generals. <laughs> Right. And I'm, 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 I mean, that's uh, exaggerating, uh, but only uh, because he did it, you know, more. He didn't just fire the generals, but basically he rolled out all the old generals and brought in new people. And the reason was he wasn't he had any bias or thought these guys were bad. He just thought they wouldn't learn fast yeah. enough because they had too much experience. This was going to be different. He knew one thing well, that he didn't know what was going to be valuable. And that he'd better learn fast. And he figured people with less baggage would learn faster than people who had lots of experience because the experience wouldn't transfer directly to the new situation. And in fact, that was the, and I have to find the quote, but that was the quote from the allies that they were amazed while the Americans made some initial missteps by not listening to the others. Uh, how they, quote, rocketed past people in learning and innovation on how to fight the war in new ways 
that were effective and um, that they were a learning that they were they really were what business organizations give lip service to about learning organizations and a lot of this comes from Marshall and the way he set up the the uh, the key uh, generals uh, and it continued on where he would fire generals and 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 by the way the one of the great stories is is that you know you need high initiative but a high initiative alone means you're you don't coordinate and synchronize very well. Right. So one of the early patents got fired because he wouldn't cooperate with anybody. And so he needed people who had initiative, but we need we need them with who will listen to others and don't don't feel like they have to do it their own way or um, only if we think of it not you know if it's not invented here we're not going to do it. Normally we think of that initiative and cooperative spirit as being different things that reside in different people. He needed a, he needed people who exemplified both. Yeah, I, that's a and, that Marshall uh, title is really a good title because it allows you to sort of give that that historical reference to this. That that's pretty sexy. That'll sell. I <laughs> I think so. Oh, I think so too. I've got it. Well, like I said, this is this was supposed to be one of the chapters in the book that I'm only two years behind on, <laughs> and. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, so and so I've got to go find where all my notes are for this chapter. <laughs> now you're going to get to write it. Thank you for this. Let's stay in touch. I'll give you all the numbers and tell you how this does, and I bet we do another one soon. Thank you. Okay. okay. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.